Welcome to the Addy Hour, where we talk brain science, mental health, faith, culture, and social justice. Having attended one of Dr. Addy's town halls, I can tell you that it's vital information for anyone living in America right now. It was the first time in a very, very long time where I felt like all of me could show up, each parts of my identity. I'm your host, Dr. Nee Addy. My friend, Dr. Nee Addy, is such a unique person who is both scientifically astute, understands the human soul and the mind. At the same time, he has compassion and empathy for the masses. He's been nothing but a blessing to my congregations and my friends. It was the first time I felt like it was safe to talk about issues that are usually not talked about, like mental health and faith and wrestling with your identity. By the end, I walked out feeling so much more validated and hopeful. Welcome to another episode of the Addy Hour, our 20th episode, which I'm very grateful about. Uh, We've been doing this since about February of this year, so it's really been nice to see this come to fruition in a lot of ways. Today, I'm honored to be able to host another conversation on a really important topic. We're going to be talking about depression, ketamine, and just important considerations about navigating the mental health care system. So as usual on this podcast, you know, some really important, some heavy topics, but it's also going to be encouraging, I think, as well, just as we talk through um, some of these experiences from our two guests, both from a provider standpoint um, and from someone who's walked through the system and they're actually working together as colleagues in this uh, moment as well. So I'll let them elaborate on that as we go through. But I'm honored to be able to to welcome two guests to the podcast today, the first of which is Dr. Jerry Santacora. Dr. Santacora is the Gross Professor of Psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine. He's also the director of the Yale Depression Research Program and the co-director of the Interventional Psychiatry Program at Yale New Haven Hospital. He's someone who's been engaged in research for over 25 years using both preclinical rodent models and also human clinical studies to really understand the biology of neuropsychiatric illnesses and also to really think about and develop new approaches for treating and preventing those illnesses in the first place. Uh, He's someone who's led a lot of different projects, uh, projects within the National Institutes of Health, projects that have been sponsored by foundations, uh, projects that have been sponsored within industry, so has a lot of experiences in different realms. And what is really impressive is that he's also worked on creating and disseminating educational resources and also providing leadership to both national and international consensus uh, on international consensus statements. He's won numerous awards for his work. He's a fellow of the American College of Neuropsychopharmacology. He also received the Anna Mankia Stiftung International Award and received a Joel Eccles Research Award. So I'm grateful for the work that he does in this space and honored to welcome Dr. Jerry Sanacor to the Addy Hour podcast. Thank you, Nick. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for being here. My second guest is Ashley Clayton. And Ashley is someone who describes herself as a person who loves stories, is an avid reader of poetry, memoirs, and nonfiction. Um, She also finds joy and comfort in music and impressively during the pandemic has picked up and has been teaching herself the banjo. Ashley is someone who grew up in the rolling hills of Kentucky, moved to Connecticut for grad school and has been living in Connecticut for the past 12 years. She has a master's degree in community psychology and is also a research associate in the Department of Psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine. 
She initially ventured into the community psychology space through a determination to use her firsthand experience with mental illness for the greater good. And she's also very dedicated to social justice. So she's a mental health advocate or activist rather. She's also published numerous research papers on social inclusion of individuals living with severe mental illness, on maternal mental health, on recovery oriented and person centered care, and has also written healthcare narratives and essays. She's on the advisory board of different organizations, also owns a consulting business where she provides consultation in program evaluation and patient engagement. So I'm deeply grateful for all the important work that she does and also thankful that she's taken time to join us here on the ADR podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Definitely, definitely looking forward to it and grateful to both of you. This in some senses is in some senses an in-house conversation since we're all at Yale. But also we want to make sure as we always do on this podcast that we're just um, communicating to the, the general public as well. And so I'm grateful for the ways you all have done that already. And I know that this conversation is going to continue to do that as well. Um, but as I always do on the podcast, I always like to check in and see how people are doing overall, you know, especially as we wrap up 2020, as we look forward to 2021. Um, and Ashley, why don't we go ahead and start with you and just see how you're doing in this moment? Yeah, um, I think the most honest answer to that is I am both okay and very much not okay. Mm. Um, so I think you know, the last, we're coming into this, you know, two years of a pandemic, um, you know, uh, and I think we're all sharing that stress. Um, I, you know, there's a low, low level or sometimes a high level of just general overwhelm, stress, fatigue. So definitely, um, you know, feeling that I think um, my life during the pandemic personally has been um, challenging aside from you know, kind of everything we're all experiencing together. The day that Connecticut um, shut down, my brother, uh, they found a second tumor. He had uh, a glioblastoma. So kind of at the exact moment wow. that everything, you know, happened, our world, my my family life, you know, got, got pretty chaotic. And so he died earlier this year. And that's been, you know, uh, very painful mm -hmm. um, and, and sad. So I've been in also, you know, a process of mourning and grieving, but also mm -hmm. being away from my family, not being there as much as I want to be. Um, so, um, you know, in, in 2020, I had three job transitions, which, um, you know, is, is stressful. Um, I've had some pretty strange um, health issues, uh, physical health issues. So dealing with those, but also, I also feel okay <laughs> in some weird way. So I, you know, I think the most honest answer is really I'm okay and not okay. And I think a lot of people can relate yeah. to that. Yeah. And I think that's such an important piece to just get across. I mean, just the level of candor that you just shared as well with everything that you've gone through in the last two years. Um, and the fact that you can have both of those simultaneously being mm -hmm. okay and not okay. I think in a lot of ways, and people have heard this on this program before, but that's validating i think for a lot of people to hear because sometimes i think people feel stuck in one or the other like either i have to not be doing well or i can like there's no people don't always have room to have both and i think that's really yeah. important and honest that you're sharing that so really appreciate that jerry what about you how are you doing in this moment i think as well? ashley captured it extremely uh concisely very well in many ways and it's been a difficult professionally it's been a hard year um, as you can imagine, it's mm -hmm. been extremely busy um, and trying to adapt to working in environments that were not 
prepared to work and doing so much by telemedicine and a lot of the treatments we give are actually hands-on and trying to figure out how to do that when the volumes are so high, but yet all the procedures that we need to ensure safety become so much more time consuming. It's been a struggle, but overall, I have to consider myself one of the real lucky people that has not been directly personally affected by this pandemic. And that has been extremely fortunate and, but, you know, it, it, the burden has not been shared evenly from everybody. Mm-hmm. That's you. Yeah, that's very true as well. And again, you know, so much to ask you, I just appreciate the way you shared that honestly, because I think sometimes as well, and that's also come up that people who haven't been directly affected sometimes lessen the challenges they've also faced. So, I mean, for you as a, as a provider, obviously that's also very challenging, but at the same time, as you mentioned, you do have a place of thankfulness, being blessed and privileged to not have been directly affected. So I appreciate you putting that in context as well. And again, you know, even as we're starting, that's one of the reasons why I was so, um, grateful that both of you have joined just the level of candor with which you both speak and the honesty and the realness, I think goes a very, very long way. Um, another question which I wanted to ask, I mean, I allude to this in the introduction, but you all have had a shift in your relationship over the years, but I also just wanted to start and ask how the two of you met in what context and how um, that relationship has changed and developed over the years. So whoever wants to, I don't know the best, best person to ask to introduce that, but I'll let you all decide, I suppose. Sure. Is it okay if I go? Oh, yeah, definitely. Please okay. do. <laughs> All right. So um, I met Jerry in the early part of 2016. So um, I was hanging out with a colleague, um, a mutual colleague, well, we're all colleagues so, of ours. Um, and I had really, at this point, been struggling really severely with depression for the last few years, but was the first time I was actually having what we call like functional impairments. Mm. Um, you know, I was having some cognitive deficits, v- struggling at work. I mean, I would just like look at my spreadsheet and be like, I don't, I, I don't know what to do. Um, and so actually was on a partial medical leave from work, which was the first time I ever needed mm. to do that. And so I had reached out to a colleague who um, does some research Um, with ketamine in a different area than depression and just said, Hey, I remember you saying something about ketamine and depression. Could you, could you meet and talk? And so he actually referred me to Jerry, who at the time was running um, a a phase two clinical trial. Um, And so uh, he, he made a call on my behalf later that week, you know, I met with Jerry to really talk about what his, his research projects and to see, you know, am I a good candidate for, for any of the studies he has going on? And is it something that if I am, I would want to move forward with. And so that's really, um, you know, how we, how we met first and, uh, you know, kind of a principal investigator, physician, uh, patient, research, you know, research participant relationship. And I did end up participating in some clinical trials and um, throughout that year. And, um, you know, he was involved um, after the the studies ended in the transition of my care kind of over to um, to a team I have now. Um, but I would, you know, in the last few years, you know, we've, we've really established our relationship as colleagues, as people who really want to talk publicly and have have good conversations about what is it like to, um, you know, live with severe depression, what treatments are available, um, all of these different things together. That's a, a path I think we agreed we wanted to do. So we've kind of um, separated our uh, doctor-patient relationship really and mm-hmm. have established a, a firm relationship as colleagues here um, in the university. So 
Yeah. I, I, I look at it from the perspective, there are many good doctors that could do what I was doing to help Ashley, but there are very few people like Ashley that could really help us understand better how to provide the best care we can to mm -hmm. patients. And I think, I think our collaboration through this sense is, is real important. And, and I know you, you do have good care elsewhere. So that yes. there, are, yeah. <laughs> there are more good doctors than there are people like you. So thank you. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's really powerful. I think in a lot of ways and just to be able to have, I, I mean, I'm speculating here, but I'd say that kind of relationship is rare to have that collegial relationship and then people who are mutually invested um, and willing to learn from each perspective as well. And I think you know, that goes, we'll get into this as well, but that probably goes a long way into helping both sides see blind spots that we might not have seen otherwise, which I think is really important. I did want to pick up actually on one um, aspect that you mentioned too, in terms of, you know, walking through severe depression, because I think that's a conversation that's really important um, that has talked about in society has come up in this, uh, this podcast as well. But I think sometimes from a general perspective, there's a lack of clarity on what people mean when they say, okay, I'm feeling depressed mm -hmm. versus clinical depression versus severe depression. Mm -hmm. And so how, as you both have talked about this in public science, how do you usually help people understand what those phrases mean and what the distinctions are? Actually, I guess we can start with you and then maybe go to Jerry from there. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I think, um, there is a, a conflation of poverty of, 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 um, of depression and sadness, that they are one and the same, that when I'm feeling sad or down about something that I'm depressed, we use that term, um, you know, very flippantly and often. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is not true. Um, I, I think, I also think clinical depression can look really different for different people. Mm -hmm. Um, because you can have what I like to call like a constellation of symptoms. And so someone's clinical depression, even if we're categorizing as clinical depression, can look really different than someone else's. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's important to talk about, and I'll, I'll just speak mostly to my experience, and I'll let Jerry do all the, um, you know, from a clinical perspective, these are kind of the lines that we draw or what mm -hmm. we mean or what is meaningful. Um, but I, ref I often refer to what I am living with is severe depression or, um, um, you know, really difficult to treat depression. Um, and I think for me, if you think about like depression as a spectrum and you have this like, you know, oh, like things aren't feeling right. I'm feeling down. I'm feeling fatigued. Maybe I'm not sleeping. I'm feeling restless you know, and there's a whole spectrum of where that goes to like where I feel like my depression when it's not treated or well managed goes real, real fast, mm -hmm. um, which is this like overwhelming fatigue that my, my bones feel like they are hollow, but made of iron. Like there's like nothing in them. There's a, it's an empty feeling, but it's a heavy feeling. Um, you know, I often feel like there's just like someone sitting on my chest and it's, I have to work to breathe, mm -hmm. not in the same way, like if I'm panicked and I'm mm -hmm. struggling to breathe, but if just like, it feels laborsome. Um, there's also, I, you know, tend to have like a loss of affect of like, you know, I'm a person, I feel things really deeply. I'm a deep thinker. I'm introspective and like, 
I will know all these things intellectually, but I will look at my husband and I might not have any feelings toward him. And that's really painful um, to, you know, to experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think for me in particular, and one thing I probably don't do a good enough job of saying, because to me, they go together so well, but it's not true, is my depression is often accompanied by pretty intense suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. And that's not, that's not true for everyone. Even mm-hmm. people who have severe depression might not have um, suicidal ideation, but mine tend to be pretty close one in the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, before I, you know, met Jerry and before I was in the studies and it, I was walking around for four years and every single day and it got progressively worse. And by the time I met Jerry, like every single minute, like all I was thinking about is like how much I wanted to die mm-hmm. and like what a burden that is to carry um, and just how, how paralyzing that can be. Um, and I think depending on the constellation of symptoms I, mm-hmm. I have as an adult, I didn't, uh, when I was younger, have what I refer to as kind of these functional impairments. Um, but um, you know, I have trouble seeing the future, thinking past. Sometimes I can't even think past a day. Sometimes I can't even think past an hour, um, which makes it really hard to mm-hmm. problem solve and tolerate yeah. and um, do anything. So I think there's there's a range there. Um, but for me personally, my experience, that's, that's kind of what I mean mm-hmm. when I talk about it. Yeah, I think that's really helpful, just the way that you've painted that picture and even the bravery and, and sharing that as well, because I'm, you know, imagining people who've walked through that themselves hearing someone else talk about it, how helpful and validating that could be. And for those who have friends and loved ones who don't always know how to respond or how to react to it, just hearing that personal perspective, I think is so helpful in terms of context. Um, I really appreciate the way that you've painted that and also just clarified some of the distinctions Mm -hmm. as well, because you're right, we do use it flippantly, not intentionally, but Mm -hmm. it really is important to have that distinction so people can really understand the differences Mm -hmm. as well. Oh, go ahead, Ashley. Yeah. I was just going to say the one thing that I think was, I also think about is we often think of like happiness as the opposite Mm -hmm. of depression. Um, and like happiness might, might, I'm not convinced, but might be the opposite of sadness, which is not depression. Mm -hmm. Andrew Solomon said it and he was like, the opposite of depression isn't happiness. The opposite of depression is vitality. Mm -hmm. I feel like that, like I was like, yes. Um, like those things feel. Yeah. True. That's really good. It actually reminds me of what you said at the onset too, just that you can be okay and not okay at the same time. Yeah. And that that can be, that can be a good place to be. It can also be a challenging place to be. And there's not one static response to that, but even that in itself doesn't convey that, you know, a sense of happiness all the time, mm-hmm. which I think sometimes, like you said, people are looking for, but that's just not the reality of successfully navigating mental health in general. So mm-hmm. I really appreciate that as well. Jerry, anything that you want to add there, even in terms of uh, big pictures, Ashley's painted that picture for us? Yeah, actually, I'd pick up on a, a few things that Ashley mm-hmm. said, but I, I think you know, psychiatry in general is mm-hmm. really plagued by having a lexicon that overlaps so much with lay language. And mm-hmm. these words like feeling depressed and sad get used interchangeably uh, where they really aren't. Mm-hmm. Sadness is a symptom of depression. Um, and we use a lot of words in psychiatry in our common uh, conversations that we have a different clinical meaning when we're mm-hmm. really being specific about it. Uh, but I think the other 
issue that Ashley touched upon, which is so critical, is depression is truly, you know, it's what we call a, a waste paper basket diagnosis, meaning it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So you have these set of symptoms and signs, and we can't find a reason for them. If we find a reason for them, you don't have depression. You know, if you have hypothyroidism, you have hypothyroidism. If you're early stage Parkinson's, you have Parkinson's. You don't. So depression, by definition, is something we don't really can't really identify. Mm. We don't have a positive test for depression. We we have symptoms and we rule out all the other alternatives. And if mm. we can't find anything, we're left with the diagnosis of depression. And and that alone, uh, as you could imagine, makes it a very heterogene heterogeneous disorder. I mean, mm -hmm. there are probably many different ways you can get to that endpoint mm -hmm. of having those signs and symptoms. So it makes it very difficult. And, and again, following with what Asha was saying, it, it isn't a sort of dichotomous thing where you're depressed or not depressed. In fact, most people don't fit that thing. It's, it's on a continuum of, mm -hmm. of how far. Um, and not only just on a continuum, it's probably not a single axis. So it probably is not you know, happy to sad. In fact, we know neurobiologically, it's not the same brain regions mm -hmm. that control things like reward and control things like anxiety. There's actually different brain regions mm -hmm. that are involved. And there's no reason to think that, you know, this is on a slide rule that you, you just go from one to the other. There's probably multiple different axes involved mm -hmm. in the way you're feeling. So very long-winded way of saying it's complicated and complex. Mm -hmm. I, I really, for me, it boils down to uh, the functional impact on somebody's life mm -hmm. and the quality of life and those mm -hmm. two big issues determining whether it needs to be treated how it needs to be treated is a very individualistic type mm -hmm. you know model to approach mm -hmm. yeah but i definitely you know appreciate that that context as well and especially the functionality because i think you know for for many of us who are mental health advocates that's something we often talk about whether people notice a significant change that's impairing kind of day-to-day functioning our day-to-day -day activities where there's a big shift from people's normal kind of interactions in the world. But then I was also curious, you know, what you mentioned about the exclusion piece. And for either of you, I'm curious, did you, does that ever become a point of frustration for patients? Because I can imagine somebody saying, well, you're just ruling out everything else and saying, so it must be depression. And that, you know, as, as a patient, I can imagine that would feel very frustrating in itself to, are you sure it is or what's underlying and just kind of a feeling of unknown well it's just this because we can't find anything else like how do, how do those conversations well i promise you as a clinician and as a scientist it's very frustrating too so i i think it's you know it's humbling and i i approach this by saying you know i i let people know that just because we don't know exactly what it is doesn't mean we don't know how to provide treatment mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we don't know how to make things better. Mm -hmm. um, we we can know that without knowing exactly what's going on neurobiologically or or having the perfect diagnosis. Um, I you know to take it to the extreme, I always remind people that you know Newton isn't completely right in classical physics, but it's still enough where you can build the Empire State Building and have mm -hmm. it stand for hundreds of years. So. It, it, you know we, we can have enough of an understanding to understand mm -hmm. how to treat these. But we really don't know the underlying neurobiology for depression. And it's something I know you're, you're working hard at. Our lab is working hard at. I think we're getting closer year by year, but we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. 
Ashley, anything you want to add on that point, both either as an activist or as someone, you know, walking through and, and navigating mental illness over the years? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I would say it sounds terrible, but you're you're lucky if you find a doctor who's also going to look for other things and not assume it's depression, mm. right? Where, where there might be the rule out of we've looked for all these other things, but I think depending on what kind of care you have access to and maybe even where you live in the country and maybe who that first doctor is that you encounter, um, you know, they may or may not look um, for other things. Um, and, you know, as a, as a, I, I've struggled with some form of mental illness pretty much since I was in middle, I would say at least middle school, if not sooner, I had a, you know, a, a pretty traumatic childhood and had a lot of, um, you know, uh, symptoms of PTSD and, um, you know, started self-harming when I was very young. And so, I didn't have, um, you know, the same, I don't have the same kind of entrance story as some people who might become, you know, depressed as an adult or might have their first, you know, kind of onset or episode kind of later of like, it was pretty smack in my face, like something's really terribly wrong. And so I was connected with care at a pretty young age. Um, and so you know, I would, and I've been fortunate that I've had ac continued access to care that, you know, my parents had good health insurance that I was able to go to good hospitals that was in and out of hospitals. Um, and, you know, had, had, had pretty good, pretty good team um, for, for a while. Um, and I would say, you know, definitely depression there, but they're all arbitrary lines, but, you know, was mostly really kind of post-traumatic stress and, and reactions to being in like some pretty um, not great situations. Um, and I've been really fortunate that I've had a lot of therapy for that and some time has passed where, you know, that, that although, you know, um, is still there and still comes up and bubbles up from time to time really isn't something that kind of interferes with my, my daily life in a way. Um, but but as an adult, kind of as as that subsided, I think there was there was a process where I think depression really kind of set in and, and took over and has been the thing that I think has has been a continuous struggle for me for um, you know the, the last 10, 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it was a, a little clearer. Um, right. I do also have I have an autoimmune disorder, um, and um, you know, I think we have just discovered that I have a primary immune deficiency. And I know you had a guest who was talking about that. I mean, he has a much more severe case than I do. But um, as a patient who fatigue is a <laughs> is something yeah. I, I really struggle with, and it's a symptom of depression, and it's a symptom of an autoimmune disorder. And then, you know, kind of just in the last three months, you know, have, have found out, oh, I have these other deficiencies that like, when those are fixed, maybe I'll have some energy. So I also get the frustration of like my psychiatrist being like, it's your autoimmune disorder. And my <laughs> rheumatologist being like, mm -hmm. it's your depression. And we're all just like, and I'm like, I don't care about someone, please fix it. Yeah, exactly. um, you know? <laughs> um, so uh, I, I appreciate that, that, that part too. So. Yeah. I mean, go ahead, Jerry. No, I, I, yeah, I do. You know, I just want to make sure that, that the point I made previously and following up on what Ashley said mm -hmm. is, is clear. I, I, I mean, I think we need to be honest and 
be clear that we don't know the real underlying neurobiology, mm. but that shouldn't be um, taken to mean that we don't know what to do, mm-hmm. you know, and how to treat and help people. Right. So, and, and as Ashley's saying, you know, what we call it is actually less important mm-hmm. than knowing how to have treatments that are effective. And, and Ashley's right, we're right on the cusp of understanding the role that neuroinflammation or mm-hmm. neuroinflammatory disease could have or, or uh, immune deficiency in these disorders. And as I said, we don't really know the cause. And Hopefully someday we can say nobody has depression because we can identify what it is and mm-hmm. then treat it. Mm-hmm. But as it is, we, we, we're pretty good about treating the general diagnosis as it stands today. Right. It could be better and we're getting yep. better, but yep. as it is, we're pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's definitely, definitely well taken as mm-hmm. well. And even, you know, not always knowing the, the reason, but at least being able to move forward in the treatment, yeah. treatment phase as well. Um, on that note, I also wanted to pick up on something that Ashley mentioned as well, just in terms of, you know, having providers who were in that mindset and trying to make sure that they they treated um, the depression. And, you know, and this, in a sense, is a little bit bigger than the depression topic itself, but just mental health in general, as we've also talked about on this podcast, just not only access to care, but how providers react to people from different backgrounds and the aspects of, of how race plays in racism or zip code and whether that is uniformly accessible across the board but even say getting past that level saying that it is accessible let's make that assumption even though we know that's not true universally but even once that is provided actually you've talked a lot about just navigating the system as well and the ups and downs that you had in that process. So thinking about your 2019 piece, my struggle to access life-saving mental health care. I was wondering if you could actually just take us through, you know, as we move to that topic, how you went about putting that piece together. What was the, what was that process like for you? Sure. Yeah. Of, of writing the article or mm-hmm. yeah. Writing the article, um, motivate, what motivated you to actually put me. it out there? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, like I like I'm to get people up to speed if you haven't read the piece. But like I said, you know, I met Jerry. I was in some clinical trials because unfortunately I was like one of those people who we didn't know really how to treat my depression. I had I had a very good doctor, and I'm um, what I like to consider a very good patient of like I'm willing to try things, and if I'm not, I'm going to tell you, and we'll get a better plan. Um, but I'm willing to hang in there and see, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, I mean, we have been trying for, at this point, two years, different combinations of medicines, like different classes of medicines, all sorts of things. I was running, I was doing yoga, I was behaviorally doing everything I should be yeah. doing. I was in therapy, I switched to another kind of therapy, and like, I was getting worse. Um, so by the time I, you know, found Jerry, I, I think everyone was just like, I don't know what to do. Um you know, and I was lucky that I did respond really well to ketamine. And we can talk about that, that later, um, which is what I received in the, the clinical trial. But um, in that process of enrolling in a clinical trial, and you get access to this care that you can't get otherwise, right, mm-hmm. still being studied and, you know, ketamine, because it's, it is FDA approved for other reasons, like you can access it, unlike if it's a, you know, experimental drug without any kind of approval. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the question always is like, what do you do after? What do you do after the study ends? What do you do after the protocol ends? Protocols are different. Sometimes you have continued access. Sometimes it's a one and done thing. Um, and so, you know, 
we were in that situation of, oh my gosh, I found something. I responded super well to it. I can't get access to it. Otherwise, my insurance is going to pay for it. It's very, very expensive. There are very few people, you know, who at that time were receiving it, mm -hmm. um, ketamine on an off-label outpatient basis. And, you know, I, I ended up in the hospital um, for over a month. Um, on full medical leave, I, um, you know, tried elect electroconvulsive therapy because that was the, that is the gold standard and that was the best option. Uh, we had really exhausted options, um, you know, and unfortunately I just didn't respond to that treatment. Um, and so after that process, you know, Jerry and some other physicians at Yale New Haven Hospital were able to get me into the program to be able to receive ketamine outside of a study setting, um, really to save my life. But mm -hmm. it was, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll let Jerry speak to it too. I mean, it was a, a terrible, terrible struggle where, <laughs> um, you know, it was a, a uh, treatment by treatment approval by whoever the administrators are and, you know, love you. Thank you for, for doing that and saving my life. But really it was out of somewhat out of the doctor's control or quite mm -hmm. out of the doctor's control. Um, and it was particularly frustrating because I knew there was something that worked. It wasn't mm -hmm. like I didn't have any hope. Right. Like I knew I was like, if you can get me this, like I will live. Mm -hmm. um, and I think being that unwell and having to advocate for treatment and the way I would, right, I was exhausting the tiny resources I yeah. had left that I could have been using to try to replenish mm -hmm. some, some internal resources to make the case or connect with the right person or, you know, I mean, I, I feel like I, I was willing to beg to be like, <laughs> I will do anything because I'm going to die. Mm. Um, and it was, it was terrifying. Um, and I was so lucky. And so I think once I got approval to receive this treatment for free, like on that day, like if it hadn't happened that day, I'd had a, a conversation with one of my doctors and just said, like, I don't think you guys understand how how unwell I am and like it's going to be too late like if, if we don't fix this like it's it's going to be too late and had I walked out that day with a different answer it certainly would have been, been too late I mean that that's where I was um and I think you know I, I quickly felt well after about a month of treatment which was such a blessing from being so unwell but I I knew that like luck played a huge role in that. And that made me very, very unsettled and scared as a person. And I also recognized like of this situation, I am better situated than 99.5% of people to have mm -hmm. negotiated this and gotten through it. I mean, I'm white, I'm well-educated, I'm very well-connected. Mm -hmm. I work in the department of psychiatry. Half of my friends are psychiatrists or psychologists. I mean, I had been in the system for a long time, so I know about the healthcare system. You know, I research it. I mean, I just was so well equipped, and I, I almost died, and I, and I was like, oh, it, this this is what happens. Like this is this is how people fall through the cracks, and this is how people die because not everyone is as well resourced and connected as I am. 
And so that was what motivated it Mm -hmm. part and part. And part of it, you know, it was selfish of like, I was terrified it was going to happen again. Mm -hmm. And I needed to have a better system because I knew that like, I will not get lucky twice. And I also knew like, I wouldn't, if I, if I had to do it again, like I wouldn't survive. I still, I still kind of believe that of like, it is remarkable that I survived and I'm so thankful for that. But like, if I had to do it again, I'm still not sure I would. Right. Um, and so I wrote this piece in part for me too, of like, yes, to help others and build a better system and try to think about things differently. But then also selfishly, I was like, I, I, I almost died and I don't want that to happen again. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I'm grateful that you're here. Grateful that you took the time to write that on so many levels. And but at the same time, it's so sobering as well, just to hear how close that was, even with all the resources that you had access to. And I say that not in the sense that you had access to everything you needed, but comparatively, as you mentioned, to others who would not have those same resources and even still. And, and well, you know, resources, but also like the best doctors, mm-hmm. like, like the people who are at the top of the field, cutting mm-hmm. edge, everything. And then also who are just like very good humans, mm-hmm. um, you know, so it really was like the perfect situation to be in, except for it was a whole hot mess because there's, yeah. no, there's no, the system is very broken. If there mm-hmm. is a system, mm-hmm. um, Yeah, and Jerry, go ahead. But I was going to just hear well, your, you know, your no, perspective too, and your reactions, you know, in those moments, and even as you and Ashley have continued to talk through this. So, so there is, you know, the aspect where things, the system. I don't even know if it's fair to say the system is broken. I'm not quite sure it was ever put together properly mm. to be broken. Mm. But obviously, the system is a tremendous challenge, and especially in, in getting behavioral health care or mental health care. But the positive side, I actually sort of this was seeing how people, when you put them in a room, including the physicians that really worked hard for this, but the hospital administrators, you know, we were very fortunate to be at a university hospital where hospital administrators really worked hard to make this happen. But even the third party payers, the, the insurance companies, when we got to talk to the people from there, I, you know, there are real people behind that, that mm-hmm. want to help people. Um, so I, I think, you know, I, I was very encouraged by the fact that individuals want to make the system better, but the system, I, I again, I'm not even sure I can say needs a major overhaul because I'm never quite sure it was put together the right way to begin mm-hmm. with. Um, but clearly the mental health system in this country, but throughout the world is not prepared for the need that's placed on it right now. Um, it's a tremendous burden and, and the cost of it is substantial and we have to figure out a way of delivering all treatments more efficiently and effectively and, mm-hmm. or, or, or else we just can't afford to do this. That's, it's very, so, so true. And again, just, I mean, just the, the weight of it and the impact and the, the, the sobering nature, you know, as you both share, but actually, especially as you shared your story and I know you shared some, suggestions in the piece as well, but I'm curious how, I mean, that came out in 2019. Have these conversations moved and how have you all, you know, both in your individual spheres and even collectively tried to move things forward to, I don't know the right word, if it's not 
fixing the system, but to to get to a place that's better. Because as I mean, actually, as you mean, I mean, it's a matter of life and death in a lot of situations. To be completely frank, and how do we ensure and move forward to more likelihood of life? Yeah. So, um, you know, I I'm really thankful for the relationship I have with Jerry, in part mm-hmm. because. I get to be in conversations like this, right? Where I get to share my story, um, both to help those who are suffering feel like they're not alone and a path forward, but also I think to speak to the gravity of the situation. And I, I, I don't think we as a society appreciate that, um, you know, of how life-threatening depression can be and how, you know, immediately urgent and emergent it can be. Um, and we definitely don't fund it the way we fund other illnesses of, you know, of similar, um, severity or, or threat. You know, I, I, it was interesting in this process in 2016, when I was on my first medical leave, my brother was on his medical leave after having brain surgery from, that was, you know, he had cancer and we would talk about how different our experiences mm. were and, um, you know, how both socially and who knew that we were on leave and who brought casseroles and those, mm. you know, like that whole um, thing of just like, it is treated very differently mm. Um but there was a point at which I, I'm not at that point anymore. And I'm not comparing depression to those. I'm not saying what I have is the same thing, what my brother had, you know, I mean, the, the trajectories are less certain. There are all sorts of, you know, diff, major differences, but like there was a point where like my life was in severe jeopardy if mm-hmm. I didn't have treatment. Um, and so I think really sharing that and getting that message out, I think to put some urgency behind it of like one we need access to treatment and two, we need access to better treatments mm-hmm. because what about those of us who, you know, aren't responding to kind of what's already there. Um, and I think the other thing, you know, I, I, I comment on quite a few things in this article about, you know, research and how can we make it more beneficial to participants mm-hmm. who, who sign up and I have some suggestions for that. And I know, you know, the interventional psychiatry service has, has taken, you know, some of, some of those, um, suggestions, um, you know, but, but the funding and I think reimbursement for care. And like Jerry said, it's very expensive. I mean, I still receive free care, um, which like, I have a lot of feelings about, um, really complicated feelings about, um, you know, but definitely gratitude for sure, but lots of, lots of complicated feelings. And here I am, you know, I told you I had some health issues, these last two years and you know um one of the medication or you know one of the treatments i might take is going to be like you know ten thousand dollars a month which is much more than my ketamine bill is but my insurance is going to pay for it Mm. um kind of without much question of like once these things are proven and we have these labs to say this you can get this treatment that's very expensive and like but have access to it whereas like we have I don't know how many years of data I've probably had 130 ketamine treatments. And like, we have very good data that show that like mm-hmm. when Ashley can get this treatment, she is pretty well um, and still can't make that case. Um, so I, I don't think that necessarily even answered a question. I'm not sure I remember what it was, but. <laughs> no, but it's still helpful. I mean, there's the context for all of it. 
the, I think you know, Ashley highlights many of the, the biggest problems we face, but the, the issue of providing affordable, efficient, and effective behavioral health care is, is immense. I mean, it's, it's huge. And I don't think it's possible to target it at one spot. It really is the whole system. We, we need to be able to have early recognition. We need to have access to treatment. We need to have what we call the appropriate level or step-based care. Because you know, as we talked about, depression is a very heterogeneous illness. Not only heterogeneous, it's one that the evidence is pretty clear. If you can address it early, you could prevent later progression to mm-hmm. more severe and, and treatment-resistant stages. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously for the unfortunate people that don't have early responses, that we have access to these really cutting-edge treatments. Mm-hmm. And you, it's hard to do one of those in isolation. Mm-hmm. You know, it really is. The, the demand is just so much greater than the supply of the system. Um, it, it's just impossible for every person who needs to be seen mm-hmm. by a, a behavioral health specialist to be seen. There's just not enough mm-hmm. around. Um, and especially um, for everybody to be seen by you know, fully trained psychiatrists or mm-hmm. fully, you know, but there's, you know, there's appropriate levels of care that can be initiated. And the earlier you can do that, the the less expensive or less costly those are. So it, it's a major overhaul of the system that needs to be done. Yeah. Um, I think we're getting there. And, and as I said, I'm trying to infuse a little optimism too, that I think people really care. And, mm-hmm. and I think even, you know, even people think the insurance companies, you know, they're just, I can tell you when I talk to the individuals there, you know, people do care. It's mm-hmm. just, how do you make this work fiscally it's it's yeah. not an easy solution but it's something we need to do and i think now more than ever we're we're seeing that it, it's reached the crisis point that yeah. especially for psychiatric disorders especially for depression the mm-hmm. the impact it's having on the country the the burden on the country both economically but even just personal pain uh, is just not tolerable anymore. yeah yeah definitely agree with you and and although, you know, people may feel like we're not giving a lot of answers, I think part of it is just the awareness too, because, you know, for those of us, and I put myself tangentially in that category, but in the field conversations that we've been having for a while, but as much of these conversations need to be expanded and enlarged and in scope so that the system can be changed because just in small pockets, that's not going to do it as you were alluding to as well. I think it's really yeah. Important. I mean, it, th- these are issues that are nationwide in terms mm-hmm. of reimbursement and in mm-hmm. terms of how do you bring these novel treatments to actual clinical care. I, mm-hmm. yeah, I like you. I grew up. Uh, my my background's in physiology and biophysics. I'm mm-hmm. a pretty basic scientist at mm-hmm. heart, and I always had the idea that if we understood the basic physiology, we could develop good treatments. Mm-hmm. The rest is easy. Now, being in the field for you know, 25, 26 years, I realized that the basic science is actually the easy part. <laughs> it's it's, it's yeah. the implementation science mm-hmm. that's a lot more difficult, showing that these treatments are effective, determining mm-hmm. who they're effective for, and then getting it even once it crosses the goal line. How do you actually get it to patients? Yeah. These are these are some real struggles. Yeah, yeah. I think the other thing I, I didn't mention, I'll be mad at myself if I don't bring up, 
Um, but I've, you know, I've talked about treatments and access to treatments, better treatments, those things. But I think the other thing that I talk about in my article, and I try to talk about all the time, and if you sit down with me, we're going to have a long conversation about it, but is about also the importance of the relationship between a doctor and, and the patient and how, how in the system that we have built, how constrained that becomes and you know, really, I think the burden that the healthcare system places on doctors is tremendous and on their time and the reimbursement, like all of these things. And in turn, you know, how that impacts the relationship with the patients and the communication um, and how, you know, I, I, there are things that I remember that Jerry said to me while I was in the trial that I'm like, I will forever hold that in my, in my mind that I've had other physicians who say things. And I think really communicating, like being very clear to your patients, especially if they're not responding to treatments or you're in a position where it's like, it's really hard to figure out. You can be honest about that, but to really communicate, like I am not giving up on you and I'm in this with you. Um, you know, and, and, some of some of, I have a team of psychiatrists, you know, and some of them uh, I get to hear them talk because I'm at the university, and so they're out there talking. I get to, yeah. and and you know, one of my physicians he was giving a lecture, and someone um, it was a mixed audience of like the public and activist and neuroscientist. All of a sudden, someone mm-hmm. spoke up of like, "What about someone who's tried 20 medications? Like, what do you say to them?" Mm-hmm. You know, and he said no one has tried everything and I will never give up on a patient. Mm. And I mean, I, he's, I believed him hundred percent, not only cause he's my doctor, but like, it is like, that is for sure mm. where he's at, but like how much longer that can help someone hold on mm-hmm. um, and, and just give a little more hope or like you're holding the hope for the person who can't mm-hmm. hold it. Like mm-hmm. that is very, very important. You know, and sometimes there isn't anything to do. Sometimes there's just in that moment, like nothing that can be done. But I think acknowledging and sitting down with the person and their suffering and really saying, like, I understand what it is I'm asking you to do. You know, I understand by asking you to stay around what that means, because I'm going to I'm listening to you. I'm, I'm feeling it. I'm believing you rather than just like, you know, this kind of well, you know, we'll get around to it next time or, um, you know, or I don't know what to do and sorry. Um, but I think really being in it with the person communicating that is, yeah. is that is medicine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard in its truest form. That's so powerful. And the fact that those probably our most you. potent medicine too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very true. And I'm sure, you know, we could, if we had more time, we can talk about the neuroscience of that and what that's doing to our brains and the, the interaction there. So I would love to sit down another time me and go through that because yeah, that, yeah. that would be a great topic. Yeah. Well, I'm grateful to both of you. I mean, we, we, I feel like we talked through a lot of important topics, but then also just touched the surface in some ways too. There's so much there. So definitely, you know, be happy to revisit in, in some shape or form as well. Um, but to close, out, I did want to just ask both of you, you know, to kind of share what gives you hope, in this work, and I know you both alluded to that a little bit as well. And then also, if there are any resources that you want to share with listeners, actually, we'll be sure to actually put your piece on the website too, so people can access it pretty easily. Thank you. Thanks. But Jeremy, we'll start with you and then have Ashley wrap up. So I, I do think for depression, that the advances that have been made in the past 20 years have been quite amazing. The, the neurobiology 
I think is decades ahead of the clinical care in our understanding of some of the basic neurobiological uh, underpinnings of what we're talking about when we talk about depression. It's not a, a homogeneous illness. There's many different pathologies or, or ways that you can get there. And I think we're starting to make real strides in understanding that. And, and if you think about the availability of novel treatments, I mean, really up until the last few years, almost every medication that was available for depression was based on the monoaminergic hypothesis. Mm -hmm. This very you know, hypothesis that was developed in the early 60s, um, suggesting that norepinephrine, serotonin, to some extent, dopamine, the basic monoaminergic neurotransmitters were the, the core of depression. Um, the, the neuroscience, we've for, for 40 years, we've known that that could not account for mm -hmm. the basic pathology of depression or pathophysiology and treatment. But we've learned so much. Now, in the past five to 10 years, novel treatments have been approved by the FDA that do not target those systems in any way, such as S-ketamine or mm -hmm. version of ketamine for, for depression and, and another drug tar targeting the GABAergic system for depression, for postpartum depression, um, and many new drugs in the pipeline. So we've sort of broken out of that box that's constrained us for mm -hmm. nearly 50 years and, and opened up a whole new vista of ways of developing treatments. But beyond that, we've also developed novel neurostimulation treatments mm -hmm. TMS treatments. Uh, we, for years, we've had ECT, but that was it. Now we're really trying to re find ways to refine those treatments. And we've also broken out of the box of just accepting the fact that it takes weeks to months before somebody can benefit. Mm -hmm. Ashley can tell you, you know, one day struggling with this is, feels like an eternity. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you tell somebody, well, you'll feel better, but you're going to probably feel worse before you feel better. And it may take, you know, two months before it's clinically noticeable. We've broken out of that. Now we know there are treatments that can make people feel better in a much shorter period of time. Yeah, we're, we still have a long way to go to improve upon that. But I think the advances are, are quite real and tangible. And I think the next few decades will bring many more. And, and I think the next few years will actually help us refine what we do have. Yeah, that's definitely encouraging. appreciate you putting that perspective and giving that perspective for our listeners as well. Ashley, we're giving you giving you the floor for the closing the closing words. Oh gosh, <laughs> no pressure. Um, yeah, no. I think um, conversations like this or your podcast, you know, I've listened to almost every episode at this point. Wow. You know, those those give Appreciate those that. things give me hope. I think, mm. you know, um, we are having a more public dialogue than ever about these things, um, and are making some significant strides. Um, in our awareness, how we think about things, how we talk about things. Um, you know, I think the pandemic is definitely pushing our healthcare system, actually, as I think, just push it way past the brink. And I think we're going to be forced to reconsider this system that we've built. And I'm hoping that, you know, I think we're going to see a, a large mental health kind of fallout from this if we're not already seeing it. And and what we build and imagine in the future, we'll have to consider that whether we choose to or not, it's gonna be in our faces. So in some ways, you know, I feel hopeful about that. I also think, 
you know, nationally and internationally, um, you know, along with the pandemic, there's, you know, um, I think more awareness of racism and oppression and um, these kind of things are challenging us to figure out how do we cause harm? How do we help? And how do we show up for each other in a way that I think is a really different, at least for me personally, is also it just it's very has a very different quality and a very different conversation. Um, and I think as we learn to show up for each other better, I think both mm -hmm. we can reduce depression from it happening to begin with, mm -hmm. but then also you know have have more resources um, and supports to get people help. Um, so. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Really well said. And you put that, I mean, put that in great context too. Again, this, you know, we're, we touched the, touched the tip of the uh, the iceberg, but we also covered a lot. And I think, I mean, just a level of, of honesty and sincerity that you both shared too. I know that's going to be really important for a lot of, a lot of folks. And also be curious about questions people have on this episode too. So, I mean, at some point we'll have to have a round two and, and continue the conversation, but definitely appreciate both of you being here. Hope you both have a good, uh, Good holiday. I know that can be challenging as well, but some time to relax and just grateful again for uh, where, where you all went and just the uh, the investment that you're both making in so many different ways. So thanks so much for joining the Addy Hour podcast. I appreciate both of you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I would love to come back if you have us. So. Okay, excellent. It was excellent. really my pleasure, Nay, and great seeing you again, Ashley. Excellent. Great to see both of you.